Welcome to Once Upon a Disney, an analytical yet fun-loving look at Disney narrative filmography from the 20th century and beyond. I'm Andy Redwine, and with me is my co-host, who believes in the magic at the movies, Larry Brenner. How are you, Larry? And not only do I believe in the magic of movies, Andy, I believe in the magic of podcasts. I believe that podcasts are a very special thing, and you you don't want to spend a lot of time on a podcast that doesn't get to the point. So maybe we should get to the point. <laughs> we have a guest star today, don't we? We do. We have a guest star. And our guest star is John McClay, uh, playwright, adapter, and lyricist. His plays and musicals have been produced throughout the United States and Canada. His most recent projects include Arthur and Friends Make a Musical, and Nate the Great with composer Brett Ryback, The Legend of Rock, Paper, Scissors with composer Eric Norton, and Goosebumps the Musical, colon, Phantom of the Auditorium with composer Danny Abbasque. Uh, John holds Masters of Fine Arts degrees from both the University of Illinois and Spalding University, and he currently teaches at the English Department at North Central College in Naperville, Illinois. He also serves as one of the resident playwrights at First Stage Children's Theater in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Welcome, John! Wow, that was too long. I'm sorry. I should have sent you something shorter. Uh, I'm so happy to be here. Uh, First time caller, long time listener. (laughs) That's great. I'm glad you're here, John. (laughs) Now, John, I owe you and Andy and anyone who decided to watch the movie in advance a bit of an apology here. Uh, Because John is an expert on Phantom of the Opera because of the Goosebumps musical, as we mentioned earlier, I I was looking for our Disney Channel original and I thought, hey, this would be a match. Uh, And this is a match for no one. I mean that's 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 my you, you know my I will say my next door neighbors uh, they really they were millennials and they grew up on the Disney Channel and when I said hey we're doing Phantom of the Metro- Megaplex they were like oh, we love this movie really? so I know I, I, and I think, I think you need to you need to borrow a cup of flour you should go to one of your other neighbors. <laughs> Wow. Just to be safe. <laughs> wow. Okay. So then maybe, so I'm already wrong. This movie is clearly for somebody. It's for, for somebody. And again, we're talking about the Disney Channel original movie, Phantom of the Megaplex from the year 2000. Yes. So, yeah. Um, well, let's let's get, let's just jump in here and get yeah, some please. facts and get those out of the way. So uh, to kind of set the stage for this film, uh, I hope, maybe, or at least to give you some facts to chew on. In the fall of 1909, there's a French magazine that publishes a serial by Gaston LaRue entitled in English, The Phantom of the Opera. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, The work was published in novel form in 1910. And in 1919, Gaston co-founds a film company where he publishes novels and then turns the intellectual property into films. And he serves serves as a screenwriter on two serial movie projects and one narrative feature in the 1920s. So that was kind of a thing back then, like using your own IP to make your own movies. That was cool. I, I, good for him. Yeah, yeah. So in the book, the there's an opera house, and it's believed to be haunted by an opera ghost. And there are various moments of intrigue. A stagehand is murdered by hanging. The noose goes missing. Uh, their voices heard from coming from empty rooms. And one of the main characters is abducted by the Phantom, who is revealed very early. 
and there's some Stockholm syndrome going on. It's lots of fun. So might want to check that book out. Fair enough. There have been dozens of adaptations of this novel for stage and screen, and the most recognizable are there's a 1925 silent version starring Lon Chaney and Mary Philbin, which is actually at the front of this movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a 1943 version starring Claude Rains and Susanna Foster. It's also a Lux radio broadcast you can find online, which I highly recommend that if you're into Lux radio theater. The... There's a 1962 remake of the 1943 version, which includes uh, Box, Toccata, and Fugue in D minor. And that song is in today's film as well. It's an organ piece that always notes horror in a movie. So a bit of a trope, musical trope. And of course, the 1986 musical created by Andrew Lloyd Webber, which gets adapted into a film in 2004, and I think an ice show and a Vegas spectacular. And there's just a lot, a lot there. That's probably, that's probably everybody's first experience with Phantom of the Opera. It's actually not mine. My first experience with Phantom of the Opera is the 1993 video game Return of the Phantom, which involved time (laughs) travel, time traveling back to the the opera. Um, It's actually like a point and click sort of King's Questy. Sierra kind of game, and I enjoyed the heck out of it. Uh, but but uh, so free plug to that 1993 bit of <laughs> software there. En- enjoy it. I'm sure it doesn't hold up. I love it. So in 1930, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit does a version of this material, and they call it Spooks. Okay. Just thought I'd throw that in there. It's not under the Disney label, but it is Oswald, and who is now dis- back to Disney again, where I think he always belonged. And of course, there's a Goosebumps book from 1994 called Phantom of the Auditorium. And as I understand it, there's a musical based on this adaptation. And maybe our guest knows something about that. Yeah, that's true. And actually, even before that, there was a television episode of this uh, book as well on the uh, Canadian Goosebumps uh, show. So, yeah, we have a musical. You want me to talk about that? Sure. Talk about it. Um, yeah, so we did that in 2016, and then it sort of was tabled um, by the pandemic eventually. Um, during which time, we did a big uh, studio cast album with a bunch of Broadway fancy people, and that's sort of been the second life of it um, that has mm-hmm. spread it around the world. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Actually, my first experience with Phantom was absolutely the musical. I was in high school uh, when that came out, and it just started doing musicals, and I wore that CD out. I bet. I loved I it. And that was true of Danny, the composer, too. So we both loved the Andrew Lloyd Webber going into it at that point from our, our childhood. Um, and Danny was a huge uh, R.L. Stein guy, too. So that book is interesting because it's um, it never actually says Phantom of the Opera at any point in that book. Mm-hmm. Um, the conceit in that story is that they're working on a spooky show called The Phantom, which shares a number of marked similarities to the original story. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah, now that's out in the world. That's so cool. And you can listen to the soundtrack on Spotify, which I do pretty regularly. It's super fun. Yeah, we hit 5 million streams on Spotify just today. This is our big Oh, my goodness. Fancy. Wow. John, which is worth like $40. Do you you feel 
like maybe your musical would have been better had you based it on the movie that we watched today? And do you have regrets that you were not that thorough with your research as to have watched Phantom of the Megaplex? Well, it's a tough call, Larry, but uh, I'm going to say I'm uh, comfortable with our choices. Okay, I think fair enough. We're, I feel, well, look, so adaptation, right, means changing something, right? And so like, sure. when you're adapting something, there's two, I'll put into like two basic buckets. I'm sure there's more, but one is like you're taking something that already exists and you're using it as inspiration for something else. So like, I don't know, the Barbie movie. Right. Like it's got a whole new story. It's got all these new sure. things, but it's based on an existing thing. Um, and you're making it your own thing. You're saying something new. But then there's this other world where you take something that is, you know, a book that maybe is beloved or whatever, and you're taking it to a different medium, like a movie, and you're trying to, I don't know, maybe you're trying to make the fans happy, but you're trying to create some authentic representation of it. Right. And so I don't know that the world has a lot of people that are, you know, angrily uh, concerned about preserving the original Phantom of the Opera story. Um, it's actually pretty problematic. Um, but I do think, I do think that if you're going to invoke in your title Phantom of the Anything, it should maybe have something to do with it. Right? That's me. Maybe that's yeah. just personal taste. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I, I, yeah, I, I agree with you for sure. Well, let's so, get- yeah, let's get into this yeah, movie. So just just to let you know real quick, uh, Phantom of the Megaplex was written by Stu Krieger. He's also the writer of the Xenon movies, which we have covered on this uh, oh, podcast. God. Those are also fan favorites. Um, and it also includes movie veteran Mickey Rooney. The movie was made in Toronto. Uh, it was released as Disney Channel's Halloween movie of 2000. And again, yeah, you know, a lot shown in, in November of 2000. And Disney really sees uh, in two, in the 2000s and late 90s a niche for some gateway horror movies of the week, uh, and they filled it with movies like this one. So, all right, let us get into the story of Phantom of the of the Megaplex, and uh, we begin as we always do with the Manish Tana. Why does this movie begin the way that it begins? This movie begins in an I'm going to say interesting way, where the word interesting is going to do some carrying. It begins, it shows us some clips of the lawn, uh, the the silent movie Phantom of the Opera. And mm-hmm. our main character, Pete Riley, basically introduces himself to us in voiceover over this movie. Um, he's 17 years old. He's working at the assistant manager of this megaplex. It's a job. That's super important to him, and it's a job that he passionately loves. This kid was born to be the assistant manager of a movie theater. The dream has been accomplished early. He also introduced us to the other 16, 17-year-olds working at the movie theater in a way that implies that they are super important each of them has <laughs> spoiler. They are not important. Well, I mean, they get upper thirds and lower thirds, right? But uh, that's that's yeah. I I mean, and they they each of them has their own quirky nickname that he's given to them, mm-hmm. um, which I wouldn't want any of these nicknames, and makes me qu- immediately ask questions about what kind of person Pete is that he 
feels that anyone he meets he needs to diminish in this way by by so there's um there's racy lacy who i mean who does everything super fast um to the point where sometimes that causes accidents because she's in such a rush um there's hillary honey who he describes as having the soul of a, a grandmother in like a teenage body because she's always calling people honey and she's got like a grandmotherly sort of energy. Uh, there's a bunch of them. Scary Terry, who who always tells scary stories. Um, that she's kind of she's kind of the Debbie Downer of this movie. Yeah, she's you know, also the, the only one really trying to bring something scary into this movie. Exactly. Well, I at least appreciate exactly. that about Scary Terry. <laughs> uh, and I think I think what there was what was there there was Ricky Wools. Um, Ricky rules. There's question, question mark. mark. Question mark. Who always says everything in a question, and and, and the only good uh, the only good joke I liked in the show, and then Merle, whose nickname is Merle. That was my <laughs> one joke. I was like, all right, that was a lot of build up for one joke. Right. Yeah. It's true, right. Larry. Too. You know, uh, renaming everyone is a common cult leader tactic. Right. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> I'm not saying Pete's a cult leader. I'm just saying he shares some behavior. I don't think and he least... leads the cult, but I do think there is a cult-like mentality about this mm. movie theater and the way in which it's run. Uh, right. We can get into that a little. I I made this movie sound more interesting than it is. It is not that interesting. <laughs> but I I do want to I do want to suggest what. Why open the movie this way? Is it the right choice? Are there better choices? Should we not open this movie at all? These are all questions <laughs> that I have. Well, I well, actually good. Well, the one thing I thought was, oh, we're seeing all of these people and they are potential suspects for who the Phantom is. And none so, of them at any point are suspected of being the Phantom. No, not well. Merle, a lot. Merle is briefly. But but well, but well, and I guess I guess movie Mason in Mickey Rooney is as well. Right. Uh, but that's that's about it. I mean, like they really, you really do think they're going to play a bigger role in this? That they're going to be part of solving the mystery? It's kind of like if I were watching Scooby Doo, right? And you'd never heard of Scooby Doo before, you might introduce oh the folks that ride around in the mystery machine that way, right? Velma, she's this, right? Um, but it doesn't do anything for our story. There's like, so many things wrong with it. I mean, I'll go even before that. The first lines in the movie are him doing a voiceover talking about how boring and stupid history is. And I'm like, who's your audience for that line? Because I like history, so now I don't want to watch this anymore. Right. Someone who agrees with you would be like, right, I agree. Let's not watch this then. And then I think you're right that they yeah. introduced the whole Scooby-Doo team. Even though once they set about to solve the mystery, none of them are involved. That's not right. the team. It's about him and the siblings. It's not the team at all. It's, no. It's like a game of like improv party quirks where each person gets one so we can remember them later, which we don't. And we don't I need to go back to. and remember who all those people were. So, no. so here's here the thing. The actual team for this movie is Pete and his younger sister and his younger brother. Right, mm -hmm. I, and yeah. Aaron and Brian, Aaron and Brian, whose names you guys seem to know, but I don't know because they weren't introduced at the start of the movie. The right. important, so it's it's as if the movie says, "Here are the people who are unimportant in the movie. Let's pay a lot of attention to them." But, uh, but once we 
once the actual main characters start showing up, I have no idea that they are actually important to the movie because I've already been introduced to these other characters. These other characters are put front and center. So I have to imagine that the brother and sister are like secondary characters and they're not. They're so I have this characters. I have this. Cons- I have this conspiracy theory and it's this, that the movie was really supposed supposed to start at the Riley home with, uh, with Karen and, and mom, Julie, right. And, all of that. And Pete isn't really given a lot to do in those, in that original moment. And so they were like, oh, let's make him a bigger deal later. Uh, Because all of this beginning feels like it's an afterthought, like, oh, we don't really know who these movie theater kids are. And we don't really, oh, let's, well, let's label them. Let's make it a big, a bigger thing. And it feels like an afterthought. No, I think you're right. I don't think that's a conspiracy theory at all. This absolutely reads as we don't actually have an exciting opening to our movie. So let's Mm -hmm. go back, find the pre-existing footage that would make this look like an exciting opening and show us our our, our main set, which is the movie theater, which is more visually interesting than the family house oh. or anything. But I, I'm willing to bet the original script started in the family house and then got us to the movie and then theater. We to, and then we get to the movie theater because otherwise it feels like a, I mean, this feels like a bottle movie in a way where it all takes place in one setting. But I could see the ramp up as sort of a prologue of we're going to get to the movie theater and, the, and there's, con- there's a little conflict in this family. But Pete's not at the center of it. And if Pete's the main character, then he's, yeah, so. It's also just indicative of the fact this movie has like six plot lines and it sort of doesn't always know which one is the main plot line. And so it decides to start, I think, to Larry's point with the most exciting thing, which is this big Hollywood premiere and this really high stakes event and this job that he's great at. But eventually we're going to find out that's maybe not even what this movie is about. Maybe it's about... um. Well, I think we'll get to that later, but it's really the family ends up being sort of how this all resolves at the end, somewhat irrelevant to the theater or how it starts. So, I mean, how do we, I, it's, so it's the wrong choice and I can't help but feel that the right choice of this is to not start with our hero at all, to do the traditional horror opening of a movie which is there's a couple of kids in a movie theater who've gone on a date to see a a movie theater, the Phantom of the Megaplex strikes, and then we cut to our main character. Uh, Whatever happens to those kids doesn't need to be bloody or gory, but it it feels like the one person not... They showed the image of the Phantom of the Opera silent movie character up at front and center, but they don't show us our phantom or allude to our our phantom in a substantial enough way to make the idea of going to this movie theater exciting. And I think yeah. we want that traditional horror movie cold opening. I think that would well, be- Well, I record. want that. Yeah. I mean, I want that, but I think that is completely a massive tonal change to everything that comes after, right? I think, you know, it, I will at least say like the opening- is a really light and breezy introduction to the world that's going to be a pretty light and breezy movie, like all the danger notwithstanding. Yeah, but it feels almost like an Ocean's Eleven sort of like, this is this guy, he's the fast one, this is this guy, he asks questions, and that all of these special (laughs) skills are going to in some way come together to save the day. It just doesn't deliver on that. What it delivers... 
I don't know what it delivers on. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Let's move forward in the plot a little bit to the inciting incident, which, much like many elements of this story, does not appear in a manifestly uh, explicit way. To the point where I was watching this with my son, and we're about 45 minutes in, and because he listens to this podcast all the time, he says, Dad, I don't think there was an inciting incident. It's like I mm. I don't think that it's like he's like stuff is happening. What was the inciting incident? And I'm gonna I'm gonna say he's not wrong to have missed it. Uh there are a number of things that could, broadly speaking, work as weak inciting incidents. We don't know which one of them is the actual inciting incident until we know who the phantom is. And then then when you watch it the second time. Which is which is something that I don't wish on any of you, uh, but when you go to watch it the second time, it becomes a little clearer what the inciting incident is. But at the time, you might blink and miss it. So before we talk about what the real inciting incident is, I, I was wondering if maybe we could throw out a couple of weak inciting incidents that are not the inciting incident of this movie. Uh, one one thing that I'll throw out that is a weak inciting incident is that Pete's younger sister, Karen, decides to go to a movie that she's expressly been told she's not allowed to go to with her friends. She says she's taking her brother to see this Farmer Brown movie, but instead wants to go see something called what was it? The school of death. There's like 15 different yeah, names. University, University of death. Yeah. University of death. It's uh, one of the only things in the movie that's not an alliteration. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that feels at the time, like it might be an inciting incident. She is deliberately breaking the rule and she may get in trouble for doing that. In fact, she has never found out for really doing that. That is not a thing that actually goes anywhere, nor does it need to be in this movie at all, except that it sometimes separates her from the other characters that she's checking in at a different movie theater. So it's not that. Does anybody else have something that it is not? Sure, I have a terrible week inciting incident. It doesn't even happen during the story. Sure. But if you make the case that this is the story that Pete, on the biggest day of his life, is going to show it an amazing employee he is in front of all the Hollywood people, save the day, and continue his meteoric rise to the head of moviedom, then the inciting incident would be Niedermeyer convincing Hollywood to have their big premiere in his theater. And so the incident was, they're bringing this here, which sets in motion Pete's rise, like gives him opportunity, right? Gives him a moment to uh, shine in front of Niedermeyer in Hollywood and become a star. I don't think that's what it is. Well, it's not because, dumb, his, but I think it's his expectation is not realistic. That doesn't. That's not a thing that happens. Um, like, like that's that's like being like, oh my gosh, the president is going to come in and order McDonald's from me today. This is going to be my ticket to the top. No, no one store, no one story gets launched by how well they made the Big Mac. So here's another <laughs> that's not the inciting incident. Mom has a conversation with Pete about how Pete has been working too hard and not really enjoying being the teenager. 
Uh, and that seems to have been something that Pete has started doing since the death of his father. Um, and that Pete has somehow become like the man of the house to a certain degree and is maybe taking on too much responsibility, which would imply that the death of his father is an inciting incident, but they don't miss that dude. They do mm -hmm. not know what they are. They have, I mean, maybe, uh, maybe I'm being harsh on it. We do not get evidence that any of them, any of our main characters are really hung up on the disappearance of, uh, well, the death of Pete's father. Wouldn't it be great if the Pete's father was the Phantom? And he's like, I've been hiding in the wine theater this whole time. Well, it would be an improvement for sure. I have just one more thing that it isn't. Um, and it, okay, it, okay, it, sure. It's really quick. It could be that mom has gotten serious with her boyfriend. It seems to be expecting a marriage proposal. Which the kids don't seem to have any conflict over. No, no. There's no all. conflict in that at all. But, but John, you, you want to tell us what, what the inciting incident is? All right, and I will spoil the end of the movie. Please. So I hope you've all seen it as much as you're ever going to. 24 years, they've had, they've had a chance. And honestly, and honestly, there's no spoiling this movie. <laughs> yes, that, okay. was, that was done before we got it. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, so the inciting incident is when Sean gets the call from Niedermeyer and is given the news that he's not going to be in charge of the theater going forward. It's going to be Niedermeyer's nephew, I think. I don't even know. Son-in-law. His son-in-law. Son-in-law. All right. Yeah. So uh, an inco some relation. And we know all this, of course, because Pete, in the middle of a staff meeting, repeats everything Niedermeyer says back to him, which is one of my favorite conventions of movie phone calls. Um, <laughs> but he, so he's really repeating all that information, I guess, for us, that he is not going to get everything he wanted. Yes, and that's, that that's actually is, Sean, not Pete. That's Sean, the manager who yeah. uh, of, of the Megaplex. Uh, Pete is the assistant manager to Sean. But yes, that is the inciting incident. Because that is what will cause Sean to become the Phantom of the Megaplex. That's dun, the big reveal. That is one of the big reveals at the end of this movie, which was transparent to me from the beginning. But, 100. but, but when we'll talk more about that a little bit later. You could you know, Sean isn't really painted as a very clever person, but you have to give him credit. He did have the foresight. To bring a full phantom costume to work that day, just in case everything went sideways and he had to get into a lot of, you know, mischief. He And he also takes the opportunity to tie himself up and, Multiple you know, hang himself to a door. And Sean in places he, nobody knows about, assuming they'll find him in the next 10 minutes. And it does. So, so this is the other thing about the mystery. If you're trying to actually Scooby-Doo and solve this along with our main characters... Sean does things not to fool the main characters, but to fool the audience watching the movie that he is not the Phantom, which is right. repeatedly he has himself tied up and gagged with duct tape or hung on a hook or whatever to get him out of the way. He's repeatedly, quote unquote, abducted. And when I kept saying to my son, Sean is the Phantom, my son would say, but then how did he get tied up? And the answer is... I don't know, but it's just there to mislead us. And 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 like my son is trying to use logic to convince me I'm wrong on this. Mm. He says he says, but it doesn't help him to be tied up. It, the, no one has suspected him of being the Phantom. There's like like it's not helping his plan at all. And I I had to say to him, this is to fool us in the audience. 
They're not interested in actually doing a mystery here. They're they're just trying to fool us. And he's like, well, that's not fair. And it's not fair. You're not allowed to do that. But this movie does it. Yeah, it does. It really does. I will also say- Plot twists. So plot twists for the sake of fooling your audience, not- not a not a good move, friends. No, not a good move. No, I and I get mad at this in other movies too. You're allowed to fool the characters. You're not allowed to fool the audience in this specific way. Where 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 anyway? So I'm going to try to get us through the plot, such as it is, relatively quickly. Things start going wrong at the movie theater. I don't know how Sean makes any of these things happen. The popcorn machine. There's no turning that the popcorn machine just keeps exploding popcorn the the there's one film that gets you know adjusted so that it's impossible to see it's called the glimpse of genevieve or something along those lines glimpses of genevieve and you only get a glimpse of her because right that's the and each of these yeah it's it, I, each of these little stunts that happens has something to do with the title of a movie that you've never Bunch of, heard of before he even has like the power to defy gravity there are a bunch of balloons at the roof of the theater in celebration of this of this upcoming event but as it turns mm-hmm. out they're all filled with water and splash upon people as they enter now gravity should not allow that to happen balloons that are filled with water do not float to the top of of an auditorium ceiling. Well, they're had held there by a net, but anyway, yeah, they the helium helium yeah, 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 yeah. They cut they cut the they cut the net away. Yeah, exactly. I, I didn't think it was a net. It looked like she pulled. Oh, okay, what whatever. This it's just a, there a balloon a gigantic balloon disappears from the roof of the theater, only to be repurposed elsewhere. Giant fans have been set up, which simulate tornadoes um, that like blow people. Where where did these fans come from? It was only one. They had one industrial fan that made 200 people feel like they were in a tornado. I That's an awesome fan. I, Quite a fan. I, yes. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, they, they, you know, we've talked about this a lot, Larry, like how you're allowed to have like one lie yes. for the audience, right? But this movie absolutely defies logic. And the fact that your sons are trying to apply logic to this movie says that it's it's defying it, right? Well, it's a genre issue because it's either a yeah. horror movie or it's a mystery movie. But if it's right. a mystery movie, you have to give real clues and actually right. solve a mystery, which mm-hmm. our characters don't do. In fact, our characters, like for all that they, the, the, the two brothers and the sister, for all that they say to each other, like we're, we're a really great team. They accuse just about everybody in the movie theater of being the Phantom except for Mm -hmm. the person who's the actual phantom. And they only discover that he's the phantom when they catch him and unmask him at the end. They don't actually solve the mystery. Or you could make it a thriller horror movie. But if you're making it a thriller horror movie, there need to be stakes. And the stakes for this really are, you might get wet if a balloon falls on you. There might be popcorn on the floor. Uh, Oh, oh, and of course, it's, it's, said to to Pete that if one thing goes wrong at the movie theater tonight he's going to take he's going to get all the blame for it and i'm thinking to myself he's 17 years old working in a megaplex the stakes have never been lower they've never been lower he can find another job uh-huh. this is this is not it for him 
Um, so, so that's all plot stuff. There are some subplots going through along the way in which, um, uh, Pete has, uh, a crush on a girl who seems to also have a crush on him, but there's a couple of jerky guys in there who are trying to get involved. <sighs> that goes nowhere. Um, uh, mom is trying to pick the kids up at the theater. And for some reason we spend quite a bit of time watching mom and her boyfriend not be able to get to the theater on time, which I am going to say right now, I think Sean did that too. I think he went to the house of her boyfriend and sabotaged the car as part of part of his plan. It, he's, he's a devious mastermind, that Sean. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that happens. There's a whole character called Moving Mason, played by Mickey Rooney, that and I know you love Mickey Rooney. And Mickey Rooney yeah, is I, lovable. I do. I'm a, yes. You could take yes. him out of this movie and it doesn't change the story at all. It doesn't change the story at all. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I think that there's this move in there to make Movie Mason for a kid to say, oh, that's who the Phantom is. It's really Movie Mason. And what's weird is Pete says very early on in the um while we're watching the Lon Chaney movie and some of that archival footage, he says something to the effect of uh, someone died in here or someone survived this. The this old theater explosion. got torn down. There was an yes, old theater and, torn down, but and everyone left, but there was somebody that they think was still inside. And that's, that's the right. Of the and band. that's who it is. And so I'm like, is that movie Mason? Right. So that was my first that was my question. Like, is he the guy? And then, we, of course, we see this room that he kind of has tucked away, which is a little weird because wasn't all of that destroyed? And how did he get all that stuff? And so it's just very weird. There's it should be the phantom. He should be the phantom. And what so the problem I see this is actually what I think the big problem with old Mickey's character is I think he's there. Um for the speech that he gives, which is a lovely little speech about the magic of movies and how important movies are, right? And I think that's lovely. And he comes out and he sings songs and he tries to keep right. this magic going. But the movie does not like movies. Like no. this movie paints a horrible picture of movies, Hollywood. Um, and, you know, like every movie that's playing there is Cyclone Summer or, you know, Farmer Brown goes to town and mm -hmm. right, which is, I mean, I think maybe that's clever that they're showing you movies like, well, at least you're not watching Farmer Brown goes to town. I don't know that they could actually show better movies there. We might go watch them. Um, <laughs> no, but, but I, is, but I think, but he, they, this movie doesn't like movies. Everyone from Hollywood is portrayed horribly. Yes. Um, and I think there's something about, you know, that Mickey Rooney represents like when these theaters the physical structures were beautiful and magical and amazing mm. and the thing the movie just avoids is the fact that you know it's not magical is the megaplex itself yeah we don't even get to the movies like the, just the experience of going to the movies is so much worse now right mm -hmm. and then mickey rennie could be the voice fighting against that but the movie doesn't do that I mean, that's exactly it. M Mickey Rooney gives this long speech about, so he's temporarily employed as an usher, which seems to be a dream come true for him in that moment. He gets his little red bow tie um, and, and he's actually trying to keep people from seeing bad movies. So there's this line, he causes a backup. He's like, I know you bought a ticket for this movie. Don't go see it. And I'm like, Mickey Rooney, where were you when I started watching this film? 
Because this is the movie you're warning us against going to see. That is not right. a magical experience. All of the critiques that you're giving of this other movie apply to the actual movie I'm watching right now. Yeah. It's also, uh, it was disappointing to me that when he finally gets his job to work at the theater, he's terrible at it. Yeah. Like he should be fired. Like they should not let him work there. He's an awful ticket taker. They treated it like it was a villainous moment. That, that Sean fires Moody Mason. It was 100% the right call to fire him. The one thing he wasn't doing as a ticket taker was taking tickets. Taking tickets. That's right. the job. That's well, the job. Theories, though, to your point, though, that they're trying to fool the audience and not do what would actually happen in this moment is um, Sean does the right thing as the manager of a business. He does not do the right thing as the phantom trying to ruin everything. If he's right. really trying to make that everything go horrible, he should let Mickey Rooney stay there all, all night. Yep. Yep. It'll just yep. get worse and worse and worse and put him in charge of everything. If you, you want know, to but... do a better version of this movie, have it be that Sean hired all these people to do a terrible job. Right, that he sabotaged, like, and would, right, and then you're like, all of us are screw ups, but we're going to show him we can actually. You then you don't have a phantom, but you're probably a better movie. Um, and then they all, and then they all come to the, you know, rise to the occasion to to actually right. pull it off. Right, I need, I need to uh, move us through plot so we can get through this. I, there I is, guarantee you, we've 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 thought more about this plot. In the past 37 minutes than the people making uh, making this movie. There is a Therapy. climax in most movies. Uh, and there's a climax in this movie. I'm not sure. going to say it doesn't have one. In fact, it may have more than one. It it it, it may have several. Um, and usually, I say, in a, in a movie, uh, the climax is the moment where the forces of good contend with the forces of evil. It is the moment where the stakes feel the highest, where the tension is the highest. Uh, I never feel the tension is particularly high here, but what is, give me a climax of this movie, and then there are some aftershocks that are also supposed to be climaxes that are not. Uh, John, you got one? Well, certainly when he battles the Phantom in the silhouette screen. We have the actual battle of our protagonist against our type. We watch them fight. Right. Before that moment, if I may, uh, so Pete's up in the balcony, which in this event that no one can get any tickets to that are sold out, the balcony is empty for some reason. I was wondering. There's just no that. people up there. <laughs> and so he decides as this giant um, inflatable dinosaur dragon thing is attacking the people. He's going to jump off the balcony onto it with his plastic sword. And my favorite moment is when his mom, like, so George, the the, the bow says, well, where are the kids? Like, oh, look, he's up there. And she smiles as she watches her child dive off a balcony. And I was like, they could not be working harder to cut the knees out of the stakes of this moment. They're like, hey, <laughs> like, even the mom's like, I bet that goes well. This is going to go, you should all feel good about this. Our child's going to jump up a balcony onto an inflatable dinosaur that's attacking the people. And, when and then he it, goes back and fights the Phantom. And I think that's, it's attacking yeah. the yeah. people. It's inflating. They're yep. running in fear as if, as if they're seeing an actual dinosaur. 
They are not seeing an actual dinosaur, nor does it look like an actual dinosaur. It is a balloon inflating that they are treating mm. as if it is a dinosaur attack. And I wasn't I sh- thought they were treating it like they were going to get, you know, mushed by the inflation because they're all like back up against the wall. Like mm-hmm. we can't go anywhere. They're right next to an exit door, by the way. Yes. But they're by this wall like we're going to get smooshed. That's what I thought it was. But maybe they did think it was a dinosaur. I, I don't know. But that that is not the climax. That is a thing that happens. But then we have oh, yeah? that fight between the Phantom and and uh, Pete, Pete right? which I wish mm-hmm. we could have seen. But we see it in silhouette. We see, and we're left to imagine what that fight actually looked like. Yeah, John. So I'm gonna. So here you can tell me this is really stupid, but I actually, even though I just told you that's a climax, I think that's what should be the climax. Sure. I think this movie should be a climax for the protagonist fighting the Phantom. But I think we get a couple scenes later, and no, you know what? This movie wasn't about that at all. It's about Pete spending more time with his family that is now a full unit. And at that point, it feels like the climax is the marriage proposal. Right. This is what the movie was about all along. All of that stuff was meaningless. This was all about the family unit of us five coming together, which is why we had to have these awkward scenes with mom and George periodically, because that's what this is really about. And so at and, that point, I feel like- and John, who can resist a marriage proposal with a potted plant analogy? <laughs> there is a period in which. Mom, they shouldn't get married. Like, that, that whole scene, I was like, they don't know how to talk to each other at all. Listen, let's, let's, let's explain the fight. scene. Let's explain the scene. So there's right. a scene in which um, mom and mom's boyfriend, they have memes, but I don't know them. Uh, mom and mom's boyfriend are in the car. Julie, to- Julie and George. Uh, <laughs> um, they're looking at a pair of potted plants. And she starts seeing like, look at that pair of potted plants. Don't you believe that they sort of should belong together. And he's like, well, but maybe the potted pants aren't ready to be together. And and they have and the conversation keeps going like that. And they're like, well, maybe that potted parent, you know, used to be paired with another plant that died. And maybe that plant over there was cheated on by another plant. And and maybe that plant has mother issues. And 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 like it, it just but it, it it's not as funny as I just made it. But it no. is it is long. It is long. And then it comes back in it's this long. proposal in a movie theater in front of a, it is absolutely the wrong time for the proposal because mm. it, it everything about it is wrong. And also none of that mom and boyfriend stuff, the boyfriend is not really in scenes with our main characters, which are the kids. Right. He's part of mo- it's as, almost as if there was a previous set of movies with these characters. Mm-hmm. And this is the latest one. And maybe we met that boyfriend in the earlier movies and now we're now we're hoping to see a resolution here. But I had and and maybe maybe that's true. Maybe they were in some some other Disney Channel original movie. I don't know. But uh but like is is that true, Andy? What do you well, got, I have friend? two. I have two thoughts. Um, one, kind of going back to what John said earlier, nobody talks to each other in this movie in any way that any human beings have ever talked to each other in the history of humanity. The dialogue here is clunky and weird, and I have to ask, and that kind of segues into the other thought I'm having as you're talking, Larry. I don't know where we are emotionally invested. I don't know if I'm supposed to be invested with Pete 
I don't, my, my heart is actually with Brian, uh, the little guy who is the only one who believes in the phantom, which is another trope, right? They have the kid, kids, the only one who believes the story or whatever. Uh, but be that as it may, I'm not sure where I should place my heart. And my heart is certainly, I could care less whether these two people get married. I could, I do care about Brian being cared for by his older brother. Uh, that's about it. And I do care. I mean, yeah, but that's, that's it. John? Well, I, I think that, you know, one of the options with Fan of the Opera is that it is this grotesque horror story. But in a lot of versions of it, like a love story is in there. Right. However twisted and gross in the original, but a love story is in there and they present one in this. Right. Like for me, I think that's where there's at least potential emotional mired is whether Pete's going to get the girl. Right. Right. Like what? And it just becomes sort of a side thing that doesn't really matter. But does the girl he get, like, take that love get story. the girl? Yeah, he does get the What's girl. That? Does he? Well, he does, okay. but it's it's anticlimactic. It's not really important. It's like one of it's less important in the structure of this movie than George getting the girl. Right. Like like George getting married is a much more important plot point than Pete getting the girl. And even the big decisions, like the big change in Pete is not, oh, now I've got a girlfriend. I have what I want and I'm really prioritizing. It's like, no, I need to spend more time with my younger siblings who have proved themselves so useful, even though they didn't actually help at all. And another thing right. this movie tries to p- push off as this could be the climax of the movie is the actual owner of the theater shows up and says, uh, do you want to be promoted to the position of blah, blah, blah that Sean had now that Sean was the phantom? And right. it's treated as like Pete says, well, no, I want to spend more time with my family. And it looks as if the owner of the theater is going to get mad. And he goes, you know what? Take the rest of the night off. You're right. You've been through enough today. And it's just. That's also not where it is. That's not that there are no. Yeah, that Pete doesn't is not unhappy enough in his life at the beginning of this movie to actually get a climax at the end of it. Um, None of the characters, none of the characters, they've been through something. None of them have suffered, changed and grown in a significant enough way to pay off with the climax. And even our main character, even our main villain, Sean, at the end of this, they do a weird thing where a director comes out of the audience and says, I think this story would make an amazing movie. By the way, you're wrong. I know it doesn't make an amazing movie. I let's, you and, let's you and me go to Hollywood. <laughs> I have proof. I have evidence. This movie is exhibit A. Um, and we'll, we'll call it Phantom of the Megaplex, colon, the Sean McGibbon story. And it's sort of like he's getting a happy ending, too, although he seems to be sad. That he's instead of instead of continuing to manage this megaplex where he was mistreated, that he's actually getting a movie deal, which is I I would argue like this this movie makes a case for if you're not being noticed, perhaps become a Scooby Doo villain, sell the rights to your movie as a road to success. One hundred percent. Yes, it exactly yes. says that. It's the one moment we almost get stakes, right? Aside from the tornado, where they're all going to die from the fan, but we don't really think that's going to happen. At this, we're like, well, at least John is going to go to prison forever. Nope, not even that. He actually gets all his dreams to come true. I mean, the He's truth is, he's really rewarded for every terrible thing he did. He hasn't committed a crime, though. 
I mean, making the popcorn machine make too much popcorn. I mean, how many days of jail do you get for that? I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I'm going to say, like, I'm pretty sure the lawyers in Air Bud could get him off. There is no rule in the book that says if mm. you sabotage the popcorn machine, you go to jail, you get fired. That's what happens. You get fired. That's it. There are better ways to quit, Sean Mc, uh, McGibbons or whatever, whatever his name is. <laughs> um, it... I it's just, I, it's just not there. It's just not there, there you guys. When I was going through this, I, and we've talked about some of these characters, I think probably enough. Um, I, as I was going through this movie, I had several, like lot. There's just a lot of story logic issues. Um, the kids have a union contract. In what world do kids have a union contract? Um, the movies that are referenced, like w- there are constant references made to movies that don't exist. And we're supposed to know that those movies. So, so the gravity of that, like if they were, why can't you reference like the wizard of Oz or why can't you say another movie? Is that like a big copyright issue? Well, then use the whole Disney canon. Exactly. Right? They have access like, to some right. movies. They have a few movies yeah, they, they have rights to. They put Snow White in one of these theaters. Put, put, exactly. Put How funny would it be Xenon on the big screen <laughs> in one of these? Xenon yeah. yeah. for uh, The Final Voyage. I don't know. I Something. Mean, I mean, there's a rando guy that comes out of the bathroom at one point, and I thought he was the Phantom uh, when, he, when he passes uh, Karen. And I'm like, oh, is that the Phantom? Who's that? Uh and, I mean, when mom says things like, wait a sec, does your beeper have a callback function? I mean, and that's an attempt to try to get the phone number. I mean, it's so weird. Mom, um, mom is repeatedly getting upset. She calls the payphones at the theater. And because nobody picks up a ringing payphone, she's like, something's happened to the children. I, but there are minutes. There are minutes used to explain why they can't just pick up the phone and call the movie theater. I mean, it is, I, it is weird. I, Pete knows that, there's a pipe with a that, valve to help them on top of the roof as they try to escape this, uh, you know, the Cape or whatever that's got them all tied up. I mean, I know I always take inventory of the infrastructure when I go somewhere just to, just to make sure I can MacGyver my way out of a situation. Right. I love on how on and on and on like this. I love how even when they're on the roof and they're tied up and they can't see and they start like we have to start walking to 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 undot and and because and I was like are they going to sense when you're on the roof right? and I and I say and I say are they going to fall off the roof and then they say don't worry this roof has railings and I'm like well then what's the tension What's the tension? Also, why do you have to do anything? No one's life is in danger. What might happen is a movie might show viewing might go poorly. Who cares? You are paid minimum wage. <laughs> this is not your problem. Yes, John. Well, I think the railing thing like speaks to sort of its target audience issue, right? So you've got a thing that's based in horror. Most of the main characters are teenagers, which generally means what's your target age? Probably middle school, right? It's always like a little younger, looking older. And the target audience for this is six. Like, and I don't mean that pejoratively. I write things for people who are six, right? So it's got to have this moment of, hey, don't go on a roof unless there are railings. Like it's that level of like instruction to who they think their audience is. But also, you know, just don't you know, solve mysteries, most- though. If you're six years old, you should just not solve mysteries. Leave that for the... I'm, 
anyway. I think the most ridiculous plot moment, well, it's not even a plot moment, but they have to show that Pete is like amazing at his job. Like he's an actual, like he's incredible. He's a genius. So when Brian sends a thousand gumballs on the floor, he grabs a hockey stick and he hits and everyone gathers around to watch because people are falling and dying. And he hits three gumballs into a garbage can and then stops and everyone applauds and it's over. I'm like, that was the worst cleanup job I've ever seen. He's terrible at this. For, for everything, like, so being in a movie theater, and I need to talk about this too. Being in a movie theater is not like I need to learn the rules of movie theaters. This is not I've been right. to Oz and I need to know how witches work. But I'm constantly throughout this movie going, I don't think I know how movie theaters work because this movie is telling me things that I don't think are true. I don't think you actually attach hockey sticks to cardboard cutouts for a hockey movie that actually function. I think those are probably cardboard too. I don't, I don't think there's such a thing. Okay. Is there such a thing as a cinema sitter? What is a cinema well, sitter? That was my next. Yeah, that doesn't exist. Like I looked, I looked and that's not a thing. And never, if, I don't think it's ever been a thing. I, I spent I spent probably more time researching. There's a million employees that we have to know about at the beginning. <laughs> and then when they actually need an employee, they trot out this random grandma that we know nothing about. But right. Where was her introduction? So her job right. appears to be if kids are having trouble in the movie theater, she comes in and she helps them and make sure they stay in their seats. And, and I don't, I guess... But or, usually or, those people are called, you know, parents. But but beyond <laughs> that, if there are other adults in this movie theater, why right. is Pete in charge? Why is he the assistant manager when Merle the projectionist is an adult? When the cinema sitter is an adult? There are adults at this theater he could go to. Why does no one call the police? Why does why does no one call the fire department? Why anything? Why any of the choices that they're making? Why? Sabotage. Sabotage. And, and I'm going to throw another thing out here. In the last Sabotage. 15 to 20 minutes of this movie, they introduce eight to 10 new characters. Mm -hmm. There's the owner of the theater shows up. His, his son-in-law, La Monica, shows up. There's a nasty woman who seems to represent people who are sitting out in in the cars shows up. Uh, there's the director of the movie that we're going to see, who at first I thought had a non-speaking role, who then gives a speech, which is not even really a, a speech is about why he's not giving a speech because he just wants to watch the movie and then does that thing with Sean where let's go to you cannot introduce a half dozen more characters in the last no. 15 to 20 minutes. John? No, I, I mean, if you're, going to, if you're going to build tension about this midnight mayhem, have that woman at the beginning. She's not going to just show up like right at the time. She's going to be there the whole time prepping and doing show prep and making sure, making sure if, she, if she's a line producer or whatever, she's going to be doing that work. So why not have her there you know, constantly raising the stakes there. And, and like John's has said again and again, that every time it looks like stakes could get raised, they get lowered. Mickey every Rooney has suddenly has a 23 to 24 year old girlfriend, girlfriend slash protege. Who's a movie I mean, star. Where does she come from, John? Also? Yeah. Like, how, so 
someone from this small town went to Hollywood, became the biggest star to the fact that she's got a cutout, right? Yeah. At the beginning, Mickey Rooney gives it a little kiss, which is weird. And nobody knows that. Like, nobody knows that this famous star is from their town except Mickey Rooney. He's the only one. And she's she not that do much anything. older than they are. I know. I know. She doesn't, like, she doesn't do anything. And and so here's- She's the- just there to give Mickey street cred. That's what I thought. It was like, she's going to show up and just announce a shot that actually Mickey is a very big deal. Yeah. I, I, and here's, here's the other thing that this movie really- Love, fi- love finds Andy Hardy, right? There is an absent <laughs> character from this movie. What this movie actually needs is at the end of the movie, once Sean has been revealed as the Phantom- it needs to kick it up a notch and reveal there's an actual real phantom in this theater. And like, let's actually take it to a place where like Sean has angered the person who was the, and it should be Mickey Rooney. It, it, it should be Mickey Rooney at the or end. Or the cinema center or somebody. Or, or some, <laughs> right. Someone, there needs to be that extra level that, that retains the magic of this theater to agree this story so the story can continue in some way shape or form so that the kids can get maintain their sense of wonder about this mm-hmm. megaplex which has this cool backstory about maybe there's a phantom in it we st- we need to know conclusively inconclusively that maybe there still is one and they do it the wrong way with, with movie mason saying at the end there's no such thing as a phantom of the megaplex now the werewolf of the megaplex that's a different story and like I don't want to go see the werewolf of the Megaplex. That's it's ironic. Like the werewolf, they could have just done that. This movie could have been the werewolf of the Megaplex, and they would have had to change almost nothing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, given this movie, let's do some pitches. Pitch okay. time. So, given this movie's opening for a sequel in uh, Werewolf of the Megaplex, and of course the. the nod perhaps to phantom of the opera and all that great material what might we do with this john well to be fair like one of my frustrations watching the movie was managing my own expectations of what i thought it was going to be right which Mm -hmm. is a little unfair maybe but what i was hoping this would be or having seen it is that mickey rooney uh, he's not introduced as someone with this long history with the theater. He's just a regular, sweet, old... Se- he's just a senior with a job at a movie theater who's everyone's friend, and he's non-threatening and quite decent at his job and sweet guy. And it turns out that he's an actual uh, presence of some kind who uh, has, wants, uh, has a vengeance streak, right? He wants to take revenge against bad movies, and bad buildings and the corporate sort of sterilized, like cookie cutter, unsentimental, not great movies. That he is the ghost of movie magic, right? He is the phantom of movie magic. And he is here to take revenge on everyone who is getting in that way. And then that gets revealed. And so that he's, and we, and then others are, and then Sean instead is presented as a red herring, right? Mm-hmm. And all these things, right? So we ran into this with the musical a little bit in people, uh, you know, invoking the phrase Scooby Doo. And and where I think the difference is, um, our, you know, that musical. Well, I should say Arl Stein's book, right? Has a Scooby Doo ending. It's just false, right? Mm-hmm. So it has a Scooby Doo ending to try to trick the audience that that's what it is, and then something 
more sinister or magical reveals itself, right? That's what I would be interested in. That that you take that the Scooby Doo part of it comes out and we get a real story, whether he's a ghost or just a guy, as he is in the book, right? Who's really trying to affect some change in a problematic way. That's what I would do. Interesting, Larry. Okay, so I don't want to remake this at all or fix it or pitch it in any way, shape, or form. So I'm just going to do what my heart tells me is right. And I'm going to say it is a longstanding tradition uh, since like the second or third season. Uh, ever since, Actually, it might have been the first season when Vincent Price guest stars on The Muppet Show. That The Muppets have a phantom of the opera whose name is Uncle Deadly. And I am going to I'm going to pitch instead. I would rather just watch Phantom of the Muppet Theater, where someone is sabotaging the Muppets, and the reveal at the end of it is there's two ways you could go with it. You treat you treat it straight like it's a mystery and no one can figure out who the Phantom is, but the Phantom has like shock red hair and is constantly going me 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 me, and like no one no one's like it could be anyone. Um, but you you could do it that way. But what I think my preferred ending for Phantom of the Muppet Theater is almost all of the Muppets independently of one another decided to be the Phantom of the Theater, and it's it's <laughs> almost all of them. At the end, it's just reveal after reveal. It's Statler and Waldorf. It's Gonzo. It's the Swedish chef. It's It's Bumson. It's Beaker. It's Animal going, Phantom, Phantom. They all were haunting the theater to to, to try to promote it in some way, shape, or form. And only Kermit and Fozzie, they were the only two who didn't know. Everyone else was in on it. The whole, independently of each other, came up with the same plan. And that's, that's what I want. Muppets Phantom of the, of the theater. I love it. Um, okay, so there is a line in this movie that made me laugh out loud in Phantom of the Megaplex when Movie Mason says, movies are not about commerce, movies are about magic. <laughs> and anybody that's tried to get a movie made knows that's, that's maybe you wish that was true, but maybe it really is about commerce. So I thought about, um, I, my mind immediately went to Cinema Paradiso, right? Um, so I started thinking about an American children's version of that movie, where maybe movies are celebrated and punctuate the experience of a young person coming of age. Because I do like, I mean, there there is, a, they didn't execute it well. But I did like that the, the idea that while something is happening in this movie theater and they're watching it, uh, it's actually happening to these kids out there. And I thought that it was executed well, but it's an interesting, it was an interesting idea. So I thought, you know, if, if cinema is sacred and each experience should transport us to a world worthy of our time and hard earned cash, then maybe, maybe we make a movie that's uh, a little more celebratory of the movies. Yeah. That's my idea. Yeah. I wouldn't see any of these. This is not, this is not, well, this isn't a particularly inspiring film, so so I think these pitches are are pretty solid. <laughs> All of them. Yeah, yeah. It would be this would be hard. Oh, yep. John, I feel so bad. <laughs> like, <laughs> I would love to have you back sometime when we talk about a movie that um, you really enjoy. <laughs> yeah, I was the uh, only member of my high school football team with a Little Mermaid movie poster on my bedroom wall. There's a fact. Wow. 
Why not? And maybe we pull out Little Mermaid 2, the return to the sea or whatever that's called, and and we bring you in for that one. I'm I'm sure that's just as good Uh, as the original. And I would like to say I'm sure your neighbors are lovely, and I support (laughs) anyone enjoying any movie they enjoy, however they enjoy it. And I'm willing to help you move. So there you go. Either way, I've got it. My back is good. It's good. I'll I'll do the lifting. <laughs> Honestly, John, thank you so much for being here. We really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. If folks, if you like what you're hearing, will you do us a favor and share this podcast with another Disney or classic movie fan? And if you give us a five star review, we'd be so pleased. You can check out our website, onceuponadisneypodcast.com. For more great episodes, you can also check out our Once Upon a Disney Facebook page or drop us a line in our mailbag at onceuponadisneypodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, friends, see you real soon. There's always magic at the podcast. And if there truly is a phantom of this podcast, my friends, I assure you, it most definitely is not me.